0: Look at them, madam. Have you ever in your entire life seen anything so beautiful?
1: I'm sorry, I don't know anything about stamps.
2: Live from the Stamp Show here today, infotainment complex, this is the award-winning Stamp Show here today. If you can dream it, we can collect it. Brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center, a non-profit 501c3 corporation for the advancement of philately. You can support this witness Tosh by joining the Stamp Show Here Today community. The cost is only $10 for a lifetime membership. We are an APS affiliated club. Listen to the end credits for information on joining. This is Lord Cash.
3: And this is Warlord of
2: Mapuche, Mark.
0: (laughs) This is Scott. This is Albert. (laughs)
2: <laughs> They're obviously not members of the stamp show here today community. Well,
1: uh, I, I am, but they don't they don't have their titles yet. The number of comments I had about that's overdone and you should <laughs> move on to something else that I got at the show this week last week made me think that yeah, Okay, I'm hey, not going to play that game. If
2: there's a dead horse, we will whip it until there's no horse left.
1: Maybe you will, but I refuse to be party to whipping horses.
2: Uh, okay, you, you want to put uh, the Lord and Lady stuff to rest? I still have a whole list of titles
1: that I'd like to go through. Well, and, I- and he actually has a list on the table. He's crossing them off as he uses them. Yes.
2: <laughs> I wanted to start by talking about very fair lending. This is a thing that I saw being advertised in a lot of places. I haven't seen it in the stamp collecting magazines yet, but I think it's just a matter of time before it goes there. What it is is they will loan you money on your stamp collection. Actually, it's on any collectibles, including art, digital art. So they're going to loan money on NFTs. Ooh, that's scary. Uh, collectibles and stuff. They have a list of things that they loan on, but I thought this was interesting. When you read it, uh, it says we love vault programs. So be aware that what that means is that you will mail them the collateral. They will hold the collateral. So if you want to play with your stamp collection and borrow money against it, good luck. It won't work. Uh, It says they loan 50% loan to value. Uh, How they determine the value is going to be very interesting, I think. Uh, There are people in the stamp industry who do exactly this. They do it a lot with dealers. And they do it so that the dealers can free up cash to pay for a lot of times what they have purchased so they will finance what they're purchased this is during the times when interest rates were very low um the people were charging half a percent to one percent and generally speaking one percent per month
1: well one of the people i know that does this charges
2: way more than that are is it the same person now who i'm thinking of more than likely yeah um like I said, 12% per year, it accrues on a monthly basis, so it's actually no, higher.
1: Try try 40% a year.
2: So, Scott, you're here, you're back from the APS show. How was the show?
1: show was really good. It was uh, quite busy. I was actually impressed at uh, the foot traffic on Thursday and Friday. It was incredible. Saturday and Sunday were a lot slower, but... Thursday and Friday was just busy, open to close. Mm, that's Especially good- Friday. Well, the market is up right now, so. Well, I I don't think the market had that much to do with it. There were only about sixty dealers, which I think I don't I didn't talk to a single dealer who didn't have at least a good show. Some of them had great shows, but uh, people were buying. Yeah. A lot.
2: Well, I hate to bring economics into it, but when money is is difficult to store value with, people will buy things that they enjoy, stamps, and that hold value. And uh, so you have a lot of money right now in the auctions. Uh, I heard Matt Cariga did really well with his auction, and this he, was his first did. auction,
1: right? He did. Yep, I bid on four lots, and I got—I wasn't even close <laughs> on any of them.
2: Oh, well, you were bidding, Mark. Uh, yeah, I actually uh, won a few uh, things
3: from the auction, which was really cool. Um, so uh, I spent about uh, seven thousand at the auction, and about another seven seventy-five hundred on the show floor
2: yeah. between
3: ten different dealers. Oh. So, um, so yeah, I, I spent money like a uh, like a drunken sailor.
2: Well, I spent seven. 17- well, having been a drunken sailor, <laughs> I can tell you, you
3: did not
1: spend money like a drunken sailor. <laughs>
2: Like a semi-sober semi sober sailor. Well, I spent slightly less than $2,000 at the show, and I didn't even go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, there is that.
2: So uh, overall, uh, what did you see was selling well,
1: selling not well? What were people looking for, stuff like that. They were looking for expensive stamps. They weren't looking for the uh, run-of-the-mill 30, 40 $90 stamps, they were looking for the multi-thousand dollar stamps. Um, the the booth that I shared, uh, the other the other dealer, I mean, he had... Oh, you uh, can
2: give him a shout out. Mention his name. He's a good dealer.
1: I uh, shared a booth with Larry Volovsky Rarities. Yeah. And uh, he sold uh, many, many stamps that had four, and then a couple occasions, a five-digit price on them. So I know he did well and uh that's that's pretty hard to beat i think uh yeah i i I took a lot of submissions for pse and uh had over 250 submissions for the weekend which is really good that that was you know my target was 200 and i did over 250 so uh that was that was really good yeah um i had a few Of our listeners, come by and say hi. And tell us not to uh, give our titles anymore. Yes, and we had one one gentleman joined the podcast.
2: Yeah, Brian. Uh, Shout out to Brian, a new member, just because he joined at the APS show. That's kind of cool.
1: Absolutely.
2: So remember, if you join... For a limited time now, you get to use, by the uh, virtue of hereditary Scottish uh, nobility, you get to call yourself a title for the next week. Right. I guess this is the last show. (laughs) (laughs) Hurry. (laughs) And we still have magic screens. I gave uh, Jim a magic screen today. What is a magic screen? Oh, a magic screen is um, the plastic screen that is used over hydrogen peroxide to remove uh sulfurization i didn't realize we had given it a name yeah we we called it the magic screen it's actually uh what gutter screen yeah (laughs) but gutter magic screen sounds better than gutter screen it truly is magic the magic of science oh yes so uh today we're going to talk a little bit about plate numbers uh, Scott, since you're the uh, highest ranking plate number expert here at the table, what is a plate number?
1: Most of the time we think of the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, but b- both before and after, uh, all the printers, they would put numbers on their plates so that they could identify them if they needed to pull a plate uh, to reprint a stamp or send it back to press for more to print more stamps. It was an easy way to identify which printing plate they wanted to pull and it was an easy way to store you know label their inventory but they would uh, engrave the number onto the plate in the in the salvage in the edge of the plate so that uh, they could identify what plate number it was and uh, and these became collectible as people started noticing them they'd also put their company imprint in the salvage early on Later on, they dropped the imprints. Sometimes the imprints would change, so you might get the same catalog numbered stamp, but it might have two di- two or three different imprints, and those become collectible as well. And there's a when you collect a plate block, you get the plate number, uh, and if there's an imprint, usually the imprint goes along with it, determining the size of the plate block. When... Uh, when they dropped the imprints, then you just have the, the plate number, and, uh, so, and then when, the plate, when they switched from flat plate printing to rotary press printing, the plate numbers moved over to the corner, where previously they had been in the middle of the sheet. And so you, we moved from larger plate blocks to smaller plate blocks, usually a four. And then uh, then when we moved into the more modern printing era, We started doing the plate numbers for each color because the. Because the
2: post office saw it as a way of getting more money. Well,
1: that's one reason, (laughs) but it was a way because they had plates that only printed part of the design. Each plate printed part of the design and they used a different plate for each color. So they numbered all of those and then they had a plate. So they had a plate number in the selvage for each of the colors. And uh, now our plate numbers are consisted of each digit in the plate number is usually a different color so when we use now we use the CMYK printing method which combines uh... yellow magenta and cyan and black to pretty much make any color in the spectrum depending on how much of each ink you use and so our plate numbers will have one digit of each color and sometimes we also have a digit in uh, tagging ink and sometimes when you have a duplicate color one by lithograph process and one by engraving you'll have two of the same color so that's where our plate numbers come from
2: and people collect plate blocks going way back
1: yes now on coils it's a little bit different um, they used to do this when they had the plate numbers they would do the same They would, um, but a lot of times they were trimmed off when the coils were made. So, if, But if you can find misregistered coils, and there are probably some up on eBay, you find misregistered coils, you can far find partial plate numbers, and depending on how much of the plate number is visible, sometimes you can tell what the plate number is, and sometimes you can't. And uh, the more the plate number, the more of a premium item it is. And where would you look up the numbers? Uh, the numbers... The uh, United States Stamp Society has a has a little group that keeps track of all the plate numbers. And they issue, every uh, every two to four years, they issue an updated catalog. It's called the Durland Catalog. And uh, in between, they issue supplements uh, for annual or semi-annual updates. Or I guess it would be up biannual instead of... Anyway, um, they keep Multi-annual track. Multi-annual Right, and then in their <laughs> monthly journal, they provide monthly updates, um, primarily for new issues, but every once in a while you'll find an older issue where they've discovered a plate number that was not previously reported for an issue. Um, I know I've reported a couple in the 408 and and a couple of other numbers that were older where someone had submitted something to PSE and uh, it was an actually an unlisted plate number, so uh, there there's a few still out there, and they do keep a list of the unreported plate numbers. So if you find one, it's easy to go to that list. Oh, look, it's been unreported. Then you can send them an email, and they'll it'll go in the monthly update, and then it'll appear in the next printed catalog. Uh, also, there's a uh, when you have a stamp with a plate number you can work backwards. You can look at the plate number, look up the plate number, and you can come up with the uh, Scott catalog number. Because especially, and it's nice for issues like the offset issues where you have a bunch of different types. And if you don't know the types really well, but you have a plate number, the entire sheet was made of that type with a with certain plate number. So if you have a plate number, you can tell the type, which in turn will give you the Scott number and uh so sometimes you can work backwards if you have a plate number. It isn't always the other way around.
3: They have a few of those on the liberty issue where if you're trying to tell the difference between the wet printing and the dry printing, that is also true
1: yeah. <clears throat> and in the catalog, it actually lists uh i believe it starts at the dry printings It tells you it gives you a plate number, and anything higher than that is dry printing, and anything below that would be wet printing. So the you know, sometimes the catalog is good; it'll tell you, but sometimes it doesn't.
0: If you read your catalog, there's the recognition of plate numbers, well occasionally uh, can earn you a lot of money. If you look in the catalog, for instance, uh, the ordinary Scott number 498, which is the one cent 1917 issue, there are a couple plates that were that were electro were created electrolytically. And so uh, they actually have a different catalog value. So the uh, one three three seven six and seven and one three three eight nine and ninety, the uh, the plate blocks each catalog twelve hundred and fifty dollars hinged and two thousand
1: dollars never hinged.
2: Versus what for the normals? <laughs> um, two dollars. <laughs> <laughs> That's worth well, knowing.
1: Well, there's also another one that I can think of. Um, the back when the Private perforation companies were in existence. They made uh, imperforate stamps from uh, unique plates, specifically for the uh, private perf companies to use, and they had the variable spacing. So they had two cent, uh, two millimeters spacing in in the center of the sheet, and they had three millimeter spacing in, on the outer edges of the sheet. But the Private perf companies didn't like the variable spacing. They wanted consistent spacing and they liked the wider spacing. So what the post office did is they cut out the center section with 2 millimeter spacing and uh, only gave the companies the, the wider spaced material. Well now you have what was essentially created as, uh, for coils, it's, it's considered imperfect coil waste because it uh, was only printed on those uh, plates specifically designed to produce imperfs for the coils. So even though they're imperfect stamps and uh, a single or a small block may look like any other, if you get a larger piece or a piece with the plate number on it, you can look at the plate number and actually say, this is imperf coil waste. And uh, if you find a cover with that on, I mean, you're talking big, big bucks. I mean, maybe not as much as the electrolytic plates that Albert was talking about, but, um, yeah, it, it can take a $20 cover and make it 5 dollars $1,000, depending on what it is.
2: Very cool. So, Mark, what crossed your desk? Well,
1: uh,
3: actually, what I wanted to talk about was what I saw at the, uh, at the show, and I was shocked to see. I went to a, a bunch of different dealers, and I was shocked to see how many fake Kansas, Nebraska overprints I saw in dealer stocks, um, which were um, some of them obvious, some of them not so obvious. But uh, but it, it's way more than, than than I've I've seen in the past. So I'm not sure if these are you know how how this is coming about. But uh, but you you know you got to be really careful when you're when you're looking at these stamps. Uh, you got to make sure that it's that it's got the uh, the right kind of gum on the back, um, one gum breaker, or on rare occasions two at the you know one at the top, one at the very bottom,
2: very very top and very very
3: bottom. Right. Um, the uh, what is it? Seventeen vertical lines.
1: Um, yeah, you want to see the ridges in the gum. Yeah, the, the, the sometimes they're more prominent than others, but Jess, you want to see that the gum was applied that way.
3: And then, uh, and then the color, too, the, the colors of the stamps are, are pretty uniform. Um, and I especially like the dealers who have, like, um, they'll put on a stock sheet and they'll put, you know, uh, you know half a dozen or so of the same stamp. Uh, if, you're, if you're looking through a, ca- a Kansas, a Nebraska dealer stock and one or two stamps really jump out as different colors, uh, you can uh, be guaranteed that those are
1: fakes. Or they might be the only real ones in the blot.
0: Were these fakes coming from basically one geographic area or one group of dealers that came from a certain area? Because there there have been times in the past. I remember in the late 70s, there was a group of Kansas, Nebraska fakes that we we found out later who was making them. But they all showed up in people from dealers from Southern California, Northern California. Hmm.
3: Interesting. No, I, I don't I didn't recognize any kind of pattern other than the fact that they were all in Ohio on the same day. (laughs) <laughs> but uh but no I, I there was uh it, it was it was different dealers, um different you know, different ways that they that they maintain their stock. But uh
1: but yeah it was Well a um, note on color, the one reason why the Kansas Nebraskas are so consistent in color is when they decided to do this test program for Kansas and Nebraska, they didn't use the sheets that they were uh regularly issuing. They had been setting aside sheets that were we'll say poorly centered or not up to the quality that they wanted, but they didn't want to throw them away. So they used the waste that came off the printing press for the poor poor centered material, uh, just from a couple of days worth of press runs. And so they were all, the sheets were all picked within literally a day or two days coming off the press. So the consistency of the color is extremely, Uh, consistent with Kansas-Nebraska overprints and since they never did any of the other states obviously they considered the the test program a failure Um, so nothing else was needed but um, that's why the, the color is so consistent because they weren't produced over the the source material that the overprints were placed on was not produced over a very long period of time
0: Didn't the post office do that in response to uh, post office robberies in Kansas and Nebraska?
1: They did. They wanted to see if they could, uh, so that you couldn't basically cross the state lines and sell stolen material in another state. But they found that it didn't really make much of a difference.
0: A kind of similar thing, but it has to do with currency, happened during World War II when they... um, They exported all the currency out of the Hawaiian Islands, and the only currency that was available had a a black hollow overprint that said Hawaii
2: on the back. Yeah, that's a very interesting issue because I'm too low now. The U.S. government actually was afraid that Japan was going to occupy the Hawaiian Islands. It was a real threat they saw it as a real possibility. So they pulled all the currency out, and they put in currency that was overprinted Hawaii. It ended up not happening, but it just goes to show you, you know, they were planning for the U.S. US to be invaded. They were planning for Japan to take the Hawaiian Islands. And uh, that's something that I think when you see the currency, and you see it printed on the back in big letters Hawaii, you go. Why did they think that this was going to happen? It's like, yeah, they really, really thought it was going to happen. They thought it was a real, real likelihood.
1: Well, after Pearl Harbor, yeah, they certainly did. Yeah, and the intention, the Japanese intention,
0: was certainly uh, in the June 1942 campaign to uh, to conquer the Midway Islands. The idea was to conquer Midway and then eventually conquer the Hawaiian Islands within six months. Yep. Um, the, the the my favorite my favorite. Uh, my favorite trivia question is what part of the America got conquered by the Japanese? And that, of course, was the islands of Attu and Kiska and the Aleutians.
2: I was going to say you're not going to say Midway because they didn't take Midway, nah, but yeah, nope. yeah, they did. They invaded uh, Alaska. Yep. They stayed there for years. Yeah. And then, and then we didn't kick them out. They just said oh, we're out of here this is stupid <laughs>
0: well we, thought, it's, we thought, it's cold uh, I'm going we home. It, we actually fought a battle on Attu but 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 we actually by the time we we invaded Kiska we uh, um, the Japanese had pulled out the pre- like 10 days previously. yeah yeah but the, but the battle for Attu was a was a small but very
2: bloody affair yeah it was a naval battle.
0: Well, you had a lot of ground there's a famous group of uh, famous group of Alaskans that were called the Alaskan Scouts. They were basically all the frontier and backwoods men. They became they be, they did a lot of the, the actual climbing of the mountains and attacking.
2: Yep, very interesting piece of history there. I so think Scott, we got off
1: the subject. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> so Scott,
1: what crossed your desk? Well, I have a very interesting thing. I have a Confederate States number 6. Or is it number five? Uh, I think it's number five. I don't think it's either, actually. Well, actually, it's a counterfeit uh, that was produced in New York, which, as we know, was not part of the Confederate States. So the Union was actually producing counterfeit stamps of the Confederate States to rob them of revenue. And uh, uh, so anyway, I I found a, a counterfeit at the show. And uh, so now I have a nice, very clean, no gum, New York counterfeit, Confederate States.
3: So it's the five cent blue Jefferson Davis. Yep. And the, uh, and the most notable thing about it is that the F and the E in, the, in five um, have shorter cross ba- crossbars than the genuine.
1: Yes, by a, quite a bit. And it's, it's actually noticeable if you know what to look for. Well, now we know what to look for. And also,
3: um, all the counterfeits are all the same shade, and none of the genuine stamps were printed in the same shade as the counterfeit.
1: Right. The counterfeits are a little bit more greenish than the genuine stamps.
3: So if you find one counterfeit in your collection, and you notice the shorter crossbars on the F and the E, then you can use that to compare with all the other uh, 5-cent Jefferson Davises. And if it's the same color...
0: Then you, then you immediately know it's, it's, uh, it's a fake. I would think the fake is worth as
2: much or more than the regular stamp.
1: Uh, you would think. I would, yeah, I
2: would think it would be worth more. It's got better story to it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, personally, fives and sixes are uh, pretty common. I mean, you still find sheets of them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very interesting. And people
0: would people want them cut in a way that gives them the,
1: the, uh, the uh, grade of 100.
2: Well, Well, sometimes
1: you don't have a choice. I mean, this was a single stamp. It's got four margins on it, but they're really small.
2: Well, again, uh, there's a lot of people who want to have a grade 100. And so, you know, the easiest way to get one is an imperforated stamp that's got to be a grade 100. It's a manufactured grade. I understand that. So, Albert, what crossed your desk?
0: I'm looking at some Canal Zone uh, map stamp uh, sheets right now, uh, 10 and 11. And then uh, the. actually the interesting thing was there was a complete sheet of uh, of Scott number 17B, which is the better stamp that gets $20 a stamp. There was a sheet of 100 Oh. So you don't normally see. I've never owned a sheet of that. I've owned sheets of the other stamps, but not a sheet of that particular sub-variety.
2: And the interesting thing about these sheets is they... Were printed uh, on
0: Panama on they were printed on Panamanian stamps, right? Actually, and uh and they're uh, they're they were overprinted in the one case one cent and another case two cents, but it's it's an it's, it's an interesting group of group of stuff. But but there was a lot of stuff left over um in 1924 when the when the U.S. stamps became valid again.
2: Talk about that for a second. What, what exactly is the story about 1924?
0: Well, we had um, we had uh, in 1924 the Post Office Department overprinted U.S. stamps, and they were they were used in in the post offices rather than the either the Colombian stamps overprinted Panama or Panamanian stamps alone overprinted Canal Zone.
2: Very cool.
1: Learning your history.
2: Oh, I'm I'm. I know TR and his digging out there and all the malaria and everything. And uh, the interesting more, thing more, is... More
0: more yellow fever than anything else. That was the big killer.
2: Yep. So, Cash, what crossed your desk? Uh, a whole bunch of U.S. number 10s and 11s. Still. Still. <laughs> and uh, the one that I really liked... Let me think of one. The one that I really liked is um, in. there's a company called Carroll... And Company in Louisiana in uh, New Orleans, and they were huge, huge, huge cotton merchants. And people would ship their letters of intent or whatever. You know, I am. I want to ship you. You know, two hundred thousand bales of cotton, and you know. So they would. All these plantations were all up and down the Mississippi, or along the Red River, or other rivers. And so they weren't postmarked at post offices. They were given to riverboat captains. And so you have a huge number with normal steam or normal way cancels. Some of them, and the one that I was uh, talking about, it was a U.S. number 25, and it just had a little X on it. And then over on the side, it said RT-6. And that was it. And it it looks like nothing. But what it actually is, is an incredibly rare red river from Texas to New Orleans cover with the U.S. number 25. And the RT-6 is route agent number six. That's how we identify which uh, river it came on. Uh, But there's this company stored all their old... Information stored all their old invoices and stuff, and when some stamp collector went there, they they kept you know all the invoices and all the letters, but they like the the covers were trash, and they just said, well, throw them all in a box and I'll take them. And today, most of the really rare riverboat cancels that you know exist in like ones and twos and fives they all came from this correspondence and without this correspondence we wouldn't have a huge amount of the history of the uh, mississippi and red river riverboat transits and so i thought that was a really cool item that crossed my desk i would agree well anything else going on
0: I think we should have our, our, uh, our visitors say a couple of words.
2: Oh, yeah, Jim joined us. You want to shout into the uh, microphone and uh, say hi? Well, I just want to say thank
0: you guys for uh, allowing me to join in and listen to very interesting insights and findings that you have made. It's, <laughs> it's a great thing for all the stamp collectors to listen to this.
2: Thank you. And on that, keep collecting. We need your help. Nothing on the internet is free, including our phone and internet connections. So you can support the podcast by joining the Stamp Show Here Today Club. The cost is $10 for a lifetime membership. Please include your APS member number as we are an APS-affiliated club. Your support is greatly appreciated. Our brand new spanking
3: address is 5965 Harrison Drive, Suite 6 in Las Vegas,
2: Nevada, 89120. You left out the word glorious. Fabulous. (laughs) Because you don't put that on the letter. Oh. Well, you could. You could, yeah. You could, yeah. Well, kids, that's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank Sideshow Mel, Corporal Punishment, Tina Ballerina, oh, and from not Landing, Miss Donna Mills. Oh, she was a sport. We've had lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of fun, but now the time has come to go. If this still comes was found dead in his bed tomorrow, I'd be in heaven still doing this show.
3: See you some other time!
2: <laughs> Stamp collecting happens when we dream together.